For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? It's National Pie Day. See, there's a lot to celebrate. I am so excited about today's guest. We are going to be talking about the choreography of everyday life. And boy, does she know all about it. She has an incredible book. Uh, Annie B. Parson, renowned choreographer, is here with us today as we continue to celebrate for the rest of this month, National Book Blitz Month. Now, for those of you who are here for the first time, National Book Blitz Month was created to get people back to reading, which is very fundamental, as they used to say. And I love to read, and I have been reading this incredible book, and I can't wait to talk about it. But before I bring Annie on, I would like to give you just a little sampling of some of the great authors that we've had on this platform since we started doing this as the result of COVID. That's how it all began. And here it is. Hello, Annie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. I'm so glad you're here. I normally begin my shows by asking all of my guests, who or what are you celebrating today? But I think in your case, I should begin by asking if you're, shall we dance? Oh, we shall. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So today is National Pie Day. Are you a pie fan? What does it even mean? It means you go out, you either eat or bake your favorite pie. Oh, I didn't know that. I did neither. Well, I'll have to correct that this evening. Okay. <laughs> You'll let me know what your favorite pie is, and you may get one coming your way. You never know. <laughs> so, uh, so since you are not celebrating Pie Day, at least yet, yes. who or what are you celebrating today? Oh, boy. I think I'm celebrating you because you're inviting me to talk about my book. I mean, thank you. It's really it's really cool. Well, let's both celebrate Erin Califf, who brought you to the show today. So she's watching. And thank you, Erin, for making this happen. And uh, there's been a dance to get your book into my hands. Uh, first of all, I ordered the book through Amazon, and they told me the book would not arrive until Wednesday. But Erin, being the incredible assistant that she is, she found a way of getting it to me a couple of days ago. So I've had the great pleasure of reading this learning about your world, Paul in with Paul, and all that you do. And, uh, and first of all, I, I, you know, this idea, I'm a very spiritual person, and I think of life actually as a constant meditation with everything that we say and do. And as I'm reading your book, and everyone, you have to get the book, it's incredible. Uh, I am learning uh, that Every aspect of your life is all about the dance. It's all about the choreography. Um, how did this book come to be? Let's start there. Well, well, it's a it's a really sweet origin story because it's pretty it's pretty simple in that um, I was working on a dance history book with a number of choreographers and a different book, and 
uh, my dad's company reached out to a publisher, Verso, and which is like a radical leftist publisher. And um, the publisher said, well, no, we couldn't do the dance history book, but did Annie B have a book? And I said, no. And she said, and I said, but I could. And she said, <laughs> I love it. And she, I said, well, what would you like me to write about? And this was at the beginning of COVID, you know, where we're just seeing time sort of stretch out, lonely time. And she said, just write something. And the way she said it, and I know that you get from the book, I'm very interested in tone. Uh, her tone sort of flew me through the writing. I never, I never felt stymied or heavy or blocked when I wrote it because I had her voice in my head of just write something. It was so light and it was such a beautiful invitation. And that's sort of how tonally I feel like um, it infected the book. Well, what I love about it is that she opened the door and you simply danced right through the, the, the door That's and you right. just went along with that. Um, I asked you for a photograph of you at five or six years of age. And the reason that I asked for a, a photograph at that age is to me, that is the purest time in our lives, in my opinion. It's before life begins to tell us who we should be, who we shouldn't be. Uh, teachers, uh, our peers, fellow students. Uh, and I love this photograph. And I'd like you to tell me, first of all, the story behind this photograph. And if you can tell us a little bit about this little girl in this photo. <laughs> well, the little girl's obviously a Sagittarius because she's fascinated by fire. Um, I, I, I'm re I really am quite mesmerized by fire. And that's the first thing I see when I look at this picture. Um, and more than that, I mean, I don't really remember, of course, having the picture taken and people didn't get their picture taken very much in a casual sense then. Um, but I clearly have an outfit that I'm sporting. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> I love the photo, the fact that you are so immersed in that world of the fire that you're not even aware that the photo was being taken of you. Yeah, it's it is kind of unusual, and I also I know my dad took it, so he must have thought I looked kind of cool. <laughs> so, um, at that early age, were you already thinking of dance? I mean, did you start dancing at a very early age? How did it begin for you? Well, I I think like everyone, I danced all the time until somebody told me to stop. So, I didn't um, take dance class until I was 16, but I wanted to take, I wanted to study ballet really badly, but um, my mom didn't want to drive me to ballet class because it was kind of far. So when I turned 16, I went and got my driver's license and I literally drove to ballet class. So I started ballet class like the day of my 16th birthday. And I was in class with little children, which was fine because it was a beginning class. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have like adult beginners, I guess. Um, I didn't even notice them really. But um, yeah, so I really didn't formally start dancing until I was 16. But I was always drawing. Now, where uh, did you grow up? In Chicago. Well, uh, it, it, and I grew up, I mean, my parents were as far from the arts as parents could possibly be. 
uh, and my wanting to be in this business, it was the same thing. I mean, with rehearsals, I managed to find uh, ways to get to the rehearsals. Uh, I would hitch rides with other actors in the show. Uh, so, but that drive was bigger than my parents, myself, and it was, yeah. And it should be because if it's all about your parents deciding that's what you're going to do and pushing you into something, that's a very, very different career. Absolutely. So you, you started dancing and from the, I mean, obviously you were dancing before that, as you mentioned, uh, but once you stepped into that arena, uh, when you were surrounded by other dancers, what are your visceral responses to that that you can relate to us right now? Well, I do remember that in high school, once I had started taking dance class outside of school in the ballet world, I had a dance class in high school and I asked if I could choreograph. Um, and my teacher said yes. And she gave me um, the record of Satie's Three Pieces in the Shape of a Pear. And she said, choreograph this. And I don't know if you know that piece of music, but it's it's from the 20s. It's very, very experimental. Mm -hmm. And each section is like 60 seconds. It's very, very interesting from a durational perspective. So I already had these influences that were about, you know, try, try, try to find your own door into this material. Um, so I was off and running at that point once I was given that assignment. And I kind of never stopped choreographing after that. Well, I want to ask, what was your knowledge of choreography? I mean, did you, were there other dancers that you aspired to be like, or the fact that you said, I want to choreograph, was choreograph the word that you used at that point or yeah. was it direct? Yeah. Um, because then there was no like, um, I, a choreography sounded a little bit different then, I think, now because it's so much in the mainstream culture. Um, then it was it was like an art, more like an art. And um, and I was also studying painting. I, I always used the word. And then when I went to college, I went to college as a painting major, but I switched to dance because I was so interested in choreography. Um, and I was always interested in choreography as not like steps, not like creating phrases, dance phrases and steps, but more as an overall artistic sort of um, effort. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit different than I feel like some people think of choreography. Like when I'm hired to choreograph something, I'm not choreographing steps. Sometimes I'm choreographing steps, but first I'm choreographing the overall vibe. Like, what is this thing um, choreographically? What is the body doing in space? That's first. So that was sort of my training, which comes when a little more, yeah. Excuse me for interrupting. There, I, I've got so many questions. When did that aspect of dance and choreography begin to uh, seep into your very core, that you were aware of what that, in in yeah. yeah, I know. And it's a good question because art making in general um, sort of leaves out the choreographer often. Um, we think of the filmmaker or the visual artist or the composer, but the choreographer in a sense is the same. It's just using the material of the body. Um, and I first sort of, I probably was most aware of it. My dad was very, very into dance and 
um, he would take me to the ballet when I was little. So I saw a lot of the Joffrey ballet from very up high. And we had these seats very up high. And my dad would take us like when the Joffrey would come, we didn't go once. We would go like five times. Wow. Yeah. It was a wow. Like he was really, really avid um, ballet. He was interested in all kinds of dance, but so we would go a lot, like many nights, even on school nights. And I would watch these configurations on the stage. And at some point I realized they were people, but before that, I, I definitely thought they were like snowflakes going like, I didn't, I was so high up. Um, so I think I had sort of this idea of the body and space as a concept, maybe pretty early on. I'd like to know a little bit more about your father. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and where that love of dance came from for, for your father? Uh, I don't, I, I wish I could ask him, but I know that when he was growing up, he came from a first generation family. Like he, he was the first child born in America from Russian immigrants and they danced a lot and they didn't have TV or radio then. So um, they had radio actually at the very big, pretty early on, but not right away. But he described their family gatherings as dances. So, Mm. and this is part of the history of the world. You know, in the history of the world, people, when they met you would say, what is your dance? What do you dance? You know, dances were central to cultures. Um, and I think that was very true with my dad's family. They would dance and I'm not really sure like what the music was. Maybe it was like that sort of big band stuff, or maybe it was, um, Russian folk music. I have no idea, but they danced and they dance a lot. And so my whole childhood, my dad danced all the time and he improvised. So like he would put on, uh, music like, um, you know, like, uh, um, like jet, like very sort of far out, Gary Burton and things like that, no. Korea, things like that. And then he would just dance for long periods of time. So he was very free. Um, and I- and Were you dancing with him? Yeah, sometimes I would totally do it with him. And I, I just always thought that was normal that you would just move around to music. <laughs> Wasn't well, I? Reading, no, re, you know, reading your book, it, it is very normal. It's funny that you say that. Um, getting back to the class, uh, as you were taking, uh, go, uh, going to dance class, uh, were there opportunities for you in Chicago beyond the class? Well, kind of, but uh, as, soon as, as soon as I went to college, I tried to get a scholarship at, for the summers in the Chicago Dance Center. Um, which I got, but I didn't like it. And I moved to New York as soon as I possibly could because. Well, can I ask, I mean, I know that there was a lot of theater in Chicago. Um, Were you limited as far as the dance was concerned? And if you said that you don't like it, what was it that you didn't like exactly? It It was the limitation. I felt it was I wanted to be a small fish in a big pond, not a big fish in a small pond. Like I wanted to learn and see things and have a lot of exchange. Um, And, and there was just so people were just, it was too small town Mm -hmm. and it wasn't interesting to me. So I immediately moved to New York and New York became my teacher basically about, because I saw dance, you know, you could see shows until COVID you could see, I mean, there were incredible things downtown in dance and downtown in theater. Um, 
uh, you couldn't even choose basically every week. So, yeah. How did the move to New York happen for you? And was it an easy transition for you? And my mom has had a theory that some babies are born and they say, I'm moving to New York. (laughs) You're one of those? (laughs) I am exactly that. And she said you that I was one of those. And so, no, my parents didn't mind. Um, I just got in the car with my boyfriend and he drove me to New York um, and I never left. That's uh, well, that was me. Uh, I didn't come with a boyfriend, but I <laughs> on my own. So, I mean, when you got here, I mean, did your boyfriend move here with you as well? And was it an easy uh you know, transition in terms of acclimating yourself in the city. Uh, I mean, for myself, uh, I grew up from a small town in South Carolina. And from the moment that I stepped foot in New York, I felt that I was home. Yeah, me too. Me too. It was, it was, it was both easy and hard. It was easy in that, and every, nobody wants to hear this, and I don't blame them. It was so cheap. Mm-hmm. So I had a part-time job. And I went after ballet class every morning. So, you know, ballet classes from 10 to 12. And then I would go, um, or we called it class, mm-hmm. go to class. And then you, and then I went to work and I worked in a dance magazine. And then after work, I went to. Did you work for Dance Magazine, the magazine itself, or was it a different? It was a different one. It was called okay. Dance News. Okay. It's defunct now, but it was very small. And I was the subscriptions manager. I had a Rolodex and uh, it was very tiny. And then I would go in the evening to see things. And that, and then on Saturday, I took two classes. So I was getting just extraordinary dance training. I was studying with unbelievable people. um, And I was exposed to some of the most interesting um, dance of, the 20th century, in my opinion, um, in very small venues. And I, that was, that was my school. So and it was more accessible to, at that time than it is now. Very, very, very easy. And people, um, there was so much of it and it was very, it, it was, it was very insular, I think is the word, you know, you saw everybody all the time and you know what I mean? Um, and I liked that. There was PS122, the kitchen, dance theater workshop, and dance space. And you basically just went through those four venues. Um, I did go see ballet and things sometimes because I had free tickets through my job. But I really, my interest really was in the experimentation of the form. Well, it sounds to me as if, I mean, first of all, you are immersed in this entire world of dance. Uh, and being in New York City, you know, being this fish in a fish bowl uh, with everything going on around you, how are you acclimating to the rest of the world happening around you at this time? I mean, I was so Midwestern. I can't even, it, no, nobody would believe Other boy here. You know, I mean, there were things like uh, about New York that were just absolutely dizzying to me, but I, I found my way. Um, like uh, people hugged when they met, saw each other. I had never seen that before. In the Midwest, we shook hands. I mean, it sounds so old fashioned or even the food, you know, things were much more regional then. Uh, Like lobster, I'd never eaten lobster. Like there were a lot of sushi, like we didn't have that. It just sounds so funny now, but all those things were cool to me, interesting and exciting. And then there was the club scene, which had the very beginnings of uh, hip hop 
mm-hmm. um, and rap. And I went on to work with Salt and Peppa. And, you know, I like met a lot of interesting people, the Negril. There were all sorts of clubs that were really cool. Um, and so I think I was mostly fit right in kind of once I figured it out. <laughs> I was happy. It sounds heavenly. I mean, for me, I remember the same thing. I mean, all the, I love all the first, that first time that you had this experience, that first can never be replicated. Um, and as, as that's unfolding in your life. Um, I want to get back to the book. Um, when you, uh, she basically gave you carte blanche to do what you wanted to do. And as you sat down to write this book, did the book turn out the way that you envisioned it or did it Hmm. begin to take on a life of its own as it took off? Because it's a very unique book. I had no vision. Um, Honestly, it was very different than making a dance for me. I'd never written a book um, and I didn't have a plan. And I just went with that lightness of her tone and I just, was like, you know, during COVID, everything, it was very domestic. Everything in your house was what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kept hearing these conversations between my husband, Paul, and my son on the phone. So I would just write about them. And then I was thinking about, like, I would take walks during COVID, but everybody was negotiating the space. And I was very interested in the citizen body and the way that they're, they were inhabiting the public space. And I kept watching the way it was changing. So instead of just observing it, which, you know, I'm sure all choreographers were doing, (laughs) fascinating, I was writing about it. And I didn't give myself any do's or don'ts. I just let it go. And then I started to notice that I was creating like a braid form because I love braids. Mm -hmm. And I think I have braids in every dance I've ever made has braids. And then I realized, oh, there's a braid in my book because I had these five or six different strands of material that I was just doing this with. And that was just kind of happening because that's the way the day was unfolding. I love the fact that you are just allowing, you're very much in the moment with everything that's happening. Uh, I mean, even you talk about Paul lying on the sofa and reading the Odyssey and you, and you write about that Uh, and you know, his thoughts on it. And, uh, uh, and I love the fact that you're talking about uh, walking dogs and, you know, being in the neighborhood <laughs> and because we all do that. I mean, do you currently have a dog? I, I don't. Uh, but you were experiencing everyone else and uh, and how they, as you say, are navigating through life. Uh, were these thoughts that you would really given any time to prior to sitting down to write the book? I mean, obviously as a choreographer and you create uh, based on the space and, and there's another thing that I really want to talk to you about in a moment um, that really grabbed me um, about uh, the seven years of a dancer, which really, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, there's a, little, a lot of woo-woo about me, but the number seven just jumped out at me as I was reading about that. But again, um, these thoughts that you're putting on paper, um, is is it the same thought process as a choreographer that you were using as a writer? Um, only in, the, uh, that's really kind of hard to say. Um, 
Well, yes, because it's it's going through the same system and it's about observing movement. But I think there was a certain fun and freedom about writing that I don't have as a choreographer. Um, because I can say, I'm not a writer. You know, those things, when you say, I'm not a, hmm, but I'm doing it. And there's you're very liberated. I, <laughs> I had that. And we do it all the time. Right, right. I don't know. I'm not a cook, but I made this thing, you know, and then it's kind of cool and you have a kind of freedom around it. I had that. I don't have that as a choreographer. I'm w well aware of the whole history of choreography and dance and, you know, what's going on, what happened, what's about to happen, what happened adjacently. I mean, it's my life. So I can't be as innocent. Um, however, I let dance, the observation of movement in the body and space guide me through the whole book. And I think that's why it doesn't read random that Paul's talking on the phone and that's part of a book about choreography or walking down the street or looking at, um, you know, whatever, I can't, I can't remember everything. This A letter, for instance, writing a letter, you know, like in the middle of COVID, you, I received a letter. Um, and I thought maybe because I was writing the book, so I was so aware, but I think anyway, I started thinking of the choreography of writing a letter and the, you know, part of choreography is duration, is time, the way we use time. And part of it is space, the way we use space. And part of it is proximity from one body to the next. And all these things started to speak to letter writing. So I sat down and I wrote that section about writing a letter mm -hmm. and receiving a letter. And it became a dance. It's all amazing. I mean, it, and but going back to the the seven years of a dancer, where, I mean... I had never read that before or ever thought about that before. Um, I think it was Gwen Verdon who said, uh, you know, in a dancer's life, there are two deaths. That's when she's no longer dancing. And then the physical death at the end of the life. Um, <laughs> way, I mean, it's interesting to think about, but when you are talking about the seven years, why the seven year period? Well, first of all, I, in the book, as you can tell by the tone, I let myself say things that aren't factual. So <laughs> it's, the whole book is 100% subjective. It's yes, not, you yes. know, it's not academic in any way. So this was my experience that I would work for the, with these incredible people. And at about seven years, just like in a marriage, it starts to itch. Um, and they have either they are bored with listening to what you have to say, or the room isn't, you know, itself isn't exciting anymore for whatever reason, or you, your, your, your relationship has changed to a point that it's not that deep, the beauty of the depth of the time together, but possibly there's, and it doesn't always happen, obviously, but sometimes things start to decay rather than grow. Um, so that it was just it was just an observation. I, I, it, 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 it's a very interesting observation. And as I was reading this, I had my own observations going on. Number one, I'm thinking, you don't always have the luxury of seven years. Yeah. Uh, that's number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, when you are working on a specific project, and you're given a specific timeline, uh, and perhaps this is something you've thought about, or maybe not. 
do you think of it in terms of compressing those seven years into the amount of time that you have to work on that, if that makes sense at all to you? It does. I mean, it's an interesting comment about time that you could even do that. No, actually now, because I worked with the same people for so long and I had the the um, honor of having those particular, it's sort of an archive of movement and great, beautiful interpretations and I mean, these people were so incredible, but in short projects, like I just did two operas, both where I rehearsed for, you know, a series of weeks with those groups, groups of dancers. It's, I don't think of it as a compression. Instead, I enjoy the newness, Mm -hmm. the newness of the relationship. Uh, It can be quite exciting, like a new boyfriend. Mm. Well, you said you had, this is your first book. Uh, it's right now. It's your only book. Hopefully, it's not going to be your last book. I think there's a there's more ahead, Annie B. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as did you write at all prior to this uh, journal keeping or uh, you know? And what was your process prior to this? If you did write at all, I I, I always do write. I both write and draw. So the writing part of it, I have been writing about my work for a really long time because you have to, if you're writing grants, um, of course, I've written essays and articles and so forth just over the years. So I've had a lot of opportunity to practice writing and I love writing. I, I happen to be someone that loves writing. I know it sounds really weird because most people say it's like the worst. It's so hard. Um, I love it. Um, but Writing is thinking. Um, first are the ideas, and after that is how do you how are you going to express them? The how are you going to express them part is really up my alley because of choreography. And as you can see, the page itself is choreographed. Um, the spacing and you know all that I just and you know the punctuations and all that stuff is choreography. What you're going to talk about to me that's that's the meat. That's the most important part. Um, and that does not come easily. You have to have, that was 30 years of thinking, I would say, <laughs> that book. But what was your process? Uh, when you sat down to write this, um, are the first words that we read the first words that you wrote? Oh my gosh. Um, are they? Sort of, kind of, I think pretty much there might be a couple of changes to it, but I'm pretty sure it rolls. It's always rolled in that way. There might've been one paragraph before, mm-hmm. um, but I, I did probably a hundred edits of it. I mean, it, which I loved like the whole process of re coming back to it and working on it again and deepening it. I also love, I'm, I have not one negative thing to say about writing this book. I loved it so much. Well, it's a, it's a fun book. When, what was your process? Uh, did you uh, walk around uh, with a recorder? Did you uh, write everything down in longhand? What was the process? <laughs> I closed my door. I turned off my phone. It had to be in the morning. Um, and I sort of tried to extend the idea of morning of the morning because if depending on when you wake up the morning can end pretty quickly so i tried to wake up earlier i tried to pretend that 
12 noon was still morning. I, I write better in the morning. So I would close my door, turn off my phone and just be alone. And no, and nobody could come in the room. And it was, it was, I could probably do it for about three hours. Wow. I've been reading this great book called Morning Routines, and it's all uh, creative individuals and what their morning routines are like. Uh And one of the questions that's popped up for me uh, is, I I know that you are uh, married, you've got a son. Were they part of your morning routine at all? Or did you completely, were you able to? (laughs) The opposite. (laughs) (laughs) You were able to completely shut them out. Shut them out shut them out. And then of course they're in it too. So I, I had it, I had, I had it both ways. (laughs) I brought them into my, to my book when I needed them, but I didn't let them, I couldn't, I cannot write if somebody is even moving in the room. Wow. And as, and did you just say, I'm going to commit myself to this much time? I know you just said earlier that sometimes you like to think of 12 o'clock as being morning. And for many people, it is. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for yourself, uh, did you commit to writing X number of pages each day? Or was it just as the thoughts hit you? Did you put any types of limitations on yourself? I just wrote until I couldn't do it anymore. So that was usually about two or three hours. Um, and at the time just flew by. Um, but I didn't have like a page thing and I didn't really have a deadline and um, it was COVID. So everything was weird. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had no place I could go anyway, you know, so it was kind of amazing that I had this beautiful task. Um, and yeah, no, I don't think I had any structure at all. And I, had, I didn't have to force myself to do it like I wanted to do it. And did you share anything with your husband and your son as you were going along? Or did you keep everything pretty much uh, to yourself until you were ready to present it to them? Yeah. Once I had a draft, um, I shared it with my husband. And subsequently, he read probably 100 drafts. He was really helpful. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, How? uh, And... I, this is a question that I've asked many of the authors that I've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, this month. Um, there comes a point where you have to, for lack of a better term, give birth to this, put it out into the world. Um, was that decision solely yours? Did the editor or the publisher have anything to do with that? Yeah, she said, we're done at some point. And I was like, oh, really? We are? I didn't think this feels done. And then I was <laughs> like, well, okay, if she thinks it's done. I had a thing where I was very much following her lead because she knows her readership. For instance, the title, that was not my title. That was her title. Mm-hmm. But she sells books and I want people to buy my book and read my book and participate in my book in some way. So I, when she said things, you know, I really, really, really trusted her. Um, and she said, this is done. And I think I said, let me do one more draft. And then we did another draft. Then when, and then you have after that, which I didn't realize you have a lot of time where you get to change it some more because once it goes to the, uh, once you turn it in and then you have this whole process where the editor, there's a copy editor who looks at all the, um, grammatical and the back matter, which I love the back matter and all that stuff. And in that process, you get to make changes. So I really had 
a huge opportunity to get it exactly as best as I could get it at that at that point. Has there ever been a point in your career where you have uh, where you have doubted uh, your creative process, what you bring to the table? Uh, if so, yeah. uh, when, where, and how did that happen, and how did you get through it? And if not, what's your secret? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, well, yes, for sure. I mean, there's two kinds of doubt to me. There's just normal doubt where you just feel like uh, that just you kind of always feel because uh, nothing that you make has ever been made before. So you're always kind of starting all over again. And I always have a little a little bit of doubt um, if I can do it. Um, and it's a little I'm, I'm not emphasizing it like it's not 50 percent, but there's a little insecurity or a sense of is this really can I really do this kind of thing? I don't know if I can do this again kind of thing. But the other kind of doubt where you feel like you're the wrong person for the job. I certainly have had that. And in the past maybe 10 years, what I have done in those situations is not taken the job because I can now, I am not a choreographer who was trained in jazz. Let's just use jazz for an example. So there are certain genres of dance where if I'm asked to do a gig like um, that asks for a certain kind of dancing, like musical theater dancing or jazz or tap or, I don't have that kind of training. There are lots of fantastic choreographers they should hire. That wouldn't be me. Mm -hmm. um, so I can now pretty much, not 100%, when I have that major doubt, like, I don't think I can do this, say, then don't do it. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a good job for you. Um, now, that sounds simple. But unfortunately, once in a while, it's not that clear. Mm -hmm. So... Um, and it's a little hard to discern which is which kind of doubt. Am I being like nervous for a good reason or am I just having that little nervy thing that people just have? Well, I asked that question because now that you're wearing this new hat uh, as an author, uh, <laughs> did doubt ever come into the process of you writing this book? You know, I had this really, it was, I, I'm gonna use the word liberating again. I thought to myself many times, I'm not a writer. If this doesn't go well, it's okay. And yet, excuse me, but in your book, you <laughs> talk at one point about uh, the importance of the words that we use. And that it was a very interesting section to read about as well. Um, if you say that you're not a writer, these it seems to me, and of course I didn't see all the writes and the drafts and everything, but every word is perfectly placed on the, on the pages to me reading this as the reader. I mean, maybe I'm becoming a writer, but I, I just don't have that background, you know? I didn't study it. I haven't spent my time doing it. And I'm, I'm really of the belief that these art forms, to, to, I'm on my knees, to, you know, they take a huge amount of practice. Like, give, I'll give the example of oil paint. Oil paint is like dancing on toe, I think. You can't just take oil paint and just be able to, you understand how to work with it. It is a fucking miracle mm -hmm. to be able to take that tube of paint and translate, take that and make a painting out of it. Like, I mean, make fab, paint fabric, for instance. You look at like some of these paintings from the, you know, Flemish 16th century and they're like painted fabric. To me, that is a miracle of virtuosity 
Um, that is, I, I, I feel like that about choreography. I feel like that about, you know, um, opera singing, certain kinds of, it takes a huge amount of virtuosity to do these things. I don't have it as a writer. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, I, do, I just simply don't. It's not your wheelhouse. But it, yeah, it's not my wheelhouse. But what I did instead was I translated what I do know into writing. So I used the form of choreography, you know, in the book where I, um, for instance, you know, I, I have the space for the breath. I'm going to show. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and this is very choreographic. So this I do know about. I know about rhythm. As a choreographer, so I and that's throughout the book. I love the way that you do this. It's just, just my choreography. Yeah, so I tried to use what I did know and translate it into writing. Uh, what did you learn about yourself from writing this, or was this some? Did you learn that you are a writer? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I I wouldn't mind, but um, I'm very humble to it, but. Not too long ago, I was asked by The Atlantic to write an article about the World Cup. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about soccer. And they said, well, we want you to write about it from the perspective of dance, see soccer as a dance. So I wow. said, okay, I would love to. So that was the first thing I had written that was sort of coming to me as a writer. And I did it. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, it was really cool, you know. So maybe it's a road that I'm going down now. I don't know, but well, have you ever seen a coach's original charts of the, the, their formations of their teams and everything? Uh, that's a form of choreography. Yeah, uh, it definitely is. Uh, obviously, once they get out on the field, anything can and will happen. Uh, <laughs> they have a game plan of hopefully where they hope that it's going to go. Uh, strategy, I guess, is the right word to use. Um, they're very strategic in terms of what they put on those charts. Just like a choreographer. And, nope. and like a director. I mean, we can, we can make a lot of strategic planning, but it doesn't necessarily happen. <laughs> and I want to talk about something else that you talk about in the, in the book, and that's tone. And that the tone of everything is very important to you. Um, and tomorrow, it's very interesting. I have uh, an author, Susan Rogers, is coming on the show, who also did not start out as a writer. Um, and it's all about music and how we process music. Uh, and there's a difference between listening to music and hearing music. Um, so tone, of course, is very important with all of this. Uh, when did you start honing in on, on tone? I think it was when... Um... I started to watch these choreographers who were basically, you know, making new material in the sixties. But when I saw them, it was like, they were, they'd been working for a long time and their tone was very, um, and I write about Trisha Brown in it. So she would yeah, be an example, but there, there's quite a few of them. Their tone was so distinctly different than everything that I had learned because I had been trained in the modern modern dance where the tone is like very elegiac and it's very romantic and there's a lot of stretch and deep it's it's very deep and the if it was a color it would be like a it's very saturated deep color but these choreographers their tone was task based it was like doing an errand it was like washing the dishes or get you know that kind of tone of just doing what exactly efficiently what you need to do and nothing more and these tones 
struck me as muscularity. So the way the muscles respond when you did the romantic, deep, modern thing was a much different kind of muscularity than when you you just do something that, you know, needs to be done and nothing more. And that's when I started to really investigate the nature of tone and the aesthetic effect. Now, you, I'm going to bring up, an, you just mentioned Trisha Brown, and you write a lot about Trisha Brown in the book, and uh, that you were frustrated about how she was covered uh, in the, her obituary. I continue to be frustrated. Today, I was frustrated by the way a writer, the writers, uh, the critics write about experimental ideas. Um, there was a play that I saw the other night and tonally it's the driest, it's the driest delivery you could ever imagine. And the critic did not understand the tradition that this person was coming from, which is this sort of postmodern tradition. And this particular director has basically changed theater and internationally as well, not just here, but the writer didn't know that. And it just continues to be a problem. I mean, when Trisha Brown died, the fact that she wasn't revered as um, the virtuoso change maker that she was, was very painful to me. But, uh, well, we can go into a whole other hour talking about criticism <laughs> and uh, the way that people process when they go to the theater. Uh, I, someone said the other day that Pauline Kael, the great film critic, yeah. She would always go to the theater and she would grab the hand of the person sitting next to her really? and say, let us pray. <laughs> but she, but to continue that for the creative genes to all be in place, she went wanting to love uh, the art and everything. There are some critics out there who want to disparage yes. or put it down, or they've been assigned to cover something that they have absolutely no business writing about in the first place. Absolutely so in, in the case of this critic the other night with this play that you saw, yeah. do you feel that they just didn't get what was going I, on? No, I, I actually don't think they knew the context of this writer. Like they hadn't done their research. And that's, you know, we spend years making these pieces. It's just not okay. The more, the, the density of the work, the, 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 the gravity of what we are up to um, deserves more attention. I mean, it's fair if you don't like it, but I actually don't think that's their job to even tell us if they like it or not. I think they need to work harder and talk about what they're actually seeing. What do you see? I ask my students. Don't tell me if you like it or not. What do you see? It's hard. It's hard, it's hard to answer. Now, I want to talk about various aspects as we wrap everything up. First of all, the title of the book, you said this was not a title that you chose. Um, did you have an idea for a title as you sat down to write the book? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to call it Dancing is Living. The, uh, the, the publisher liked the title. She just felt that it wasn't going to sell as well. Mm -hmm. um, Dancing is Living is a phrase that like has sort of gone through my head for a long time because I think it's true. And it's a little bit odd um, in this way that, that works for me poetically. Um, but it's also very encompassing in that 
we shouldn't put dance over there as, you know, this thing that happens once in a while if we go to a party or we go to a show and see it on stage. But mm. we're actually always proximate. Um, we're always in a physical relationality. There's a table between us or we want to be close to someone physically, but we're nervous. So we're slightly apart. And that energy between us, that's a dance, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and so on. I, on uh, Saturday, I had Dee Wallace on the show, uh, great actress. Uh, she's also a spiritual teacher. And uh, she talks about the, you know, in the Bible, it says that uh, the heavens and the earth were created from a great void. And I'm thinking about that phrase in her book, uh, talking with you with uh, how this came from basically <laughs> nothing. nothing. Uh, you you created this incredible, Incredible book again, uh, and uh, don't get tired of me saying incredible because it is. Um, but as you you sat down with no idea of how it was going to unfold, where it was going to go, uh, how it would end up. Now that that's all in place and it's out in the world, what do you hope that readers come away with after reading your book? I hope that they are more perceptive about our bodies in space. I hope that their perception is heightened. And I tried to, without getting all teachery, um, present the different aspects of choreography that are present in our lives, like time and the use of space and proximity and tone and rhythm and muscularity. And, you know, all these aspects are at play all the time, you know. I'm not sure if on Zoom they are. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do write a little about it. We try, that. we try. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how was it, um, uh, the book came out just recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, has anything changed since the book has come out for you? Yeah. I mean, uh, do you want to talk about that? Well, what's changed is more internal, is that I feel that I've been lucky enough to have a different kind of audience than I used to have. Um, And they're readers and they're readers. Many of the readers that I noticed are not dance people. Mm -hmm. So since dance is like so insular and not some of the music jobs I've done and stuff, I know that's not insular, but um, I feel like I've sort of gained this whole other kind of feedback loop with people and reading is so cool because this book never closes like a theater piece or dance piece. Mm-hmm. It just never closes. Like, you know what I mean? Like you do a show and it closes and then, hey, you missed it if you didn't see it. But this, you can always read it. And so that's just given me a, a, a sort of a broader sense of the conversation that I want to be having. What did it feel like to physically hold the book in your hands for the first time? I was so excited, but um, my husband was doing something else, so he didn't make a fuss. But I was really excited. (laughs) (laughs) As you should be. Um, (laughs) Any last words that you want to say? And then I'm going to give you really the final word today. Uh, But uh, uh, before we leave the book itself, uh, that you want to leave everyone with. And then I'm going to give my final uh, comments, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, but anything coming from the book that you would like to really get across to everyone today? Well, something I was thinking about since I wrote the book 
was the power of the body and architecture. And I was thinking about this as so fundamental that, you know, where you set your chair as opposed to where someone else sits their chair or this land or this house or this um, building is mine or this land is yours or this fence or, you know, all these architectures and where we place our bodies and have huge amounts of power, create power and take away power. And if I was going to write another chapter, I think I would write about that. Well, I hope that chapter comes out. You can write a blog. You can still do that. I mean, it's, it, and you talk about my fence, my house, and, and I, but I look at, for me, it's all about the collaboration and it is about the dance. It's about the give and take between everyone. If someone walks into a, a room and they retreat to the corner because they feel uh, shy or whatever those feelings are that they're feeling, um, those feelings will permeate throughout the room. It's an energy that is put out. But if someone walks into a room with a dynamic feel of, I'm going to own this space that I'm in. I mean, to me, that's a great dancer. When a dancer hits the stage and you know that they fill that entire space, um, that imagery of you as a little girl sitting at the top of the theater and looking down and seeing all of those snowflakes dancing around on the stage, but all of those snowflakes owned the space that they were in. And I think that that's what it's all about for all of us, owning the space that we're in, yeah. but sharing it at the same time. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, again, I've, uh, I want to thank Aaron so much uh, for reaching out to you and, and you saying yes to me. Because to me, it's all, for me, it's all about saying yes. And I thank you for this. Don't go anywhere for a moment. I'm going to say my final uh, comments, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, and it could be about anything that we talked about today uh, that you want to uh, build upon, anything we didn't talk about that you wish we had, uh, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. And don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Uh, each day. I have this incredible deck of cards called Core Values. And each day I pull a card uh, and I focus on that word as I go throughout the day. And the word that I pull today, as I pull it up here, is uniqueness. And uh, I think I've been thinking about this word a lot today uh, as I think about your book because it's unique. It's unique into itself. Uh, it's almost as if you've created a new genre of books, uh, something that I have never experienced as a reader before. And I love to read. Everyone who knows me knows that. So I congratulate you on that uh, and be proud of the work that you've put into this as it goes along with all the other incredible gifts that you've given to the world. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone, Call a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while and tell them about today's show. Uh, better yet, buy two copies of this book. Keep one for yourself and send it to that friend that you were constantly dancing with in whatever way that may be, um, because we are all in this together. A dear friend of mine says we're all uh, in uh, the storm together, but we're in different sized boats. And I say that there are some people that are in yachts, some are in rowboats, 
some are in canoes, some are in tugboats pushing everything upstream. It doesn't matter. Whatever boat you're in, make sure that you have a skipper by your side. And with that, Annie B, I'm going to turn it over to you. And you're always welcome here. Uh, thanks again uh, for being here today. And thank you all for uh, tuning in. Annie B, it's all yours. <laughs> I, I really just want to thank you, Richard, for having me today and talking about my book. It's a real pleasure to share this these ideas with you. I, I came up with a lot of new ideas just talking to you. So thank you so much. Um, and have a good pie day. <laughs>